Good morning, Highland Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, toward the back of your Bible, verses 1 and 2. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you that you have given us the book of 1 John, that we might know more about you. We ask, Father, that as we mine this book, that we would mind this book, that we would know what to think and how to act, and that you would apply your inspired and errant truth to our lives. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word anger. Or what about the word wrath? How do we handle these twin words? I suppose for some we get a little embarrassed when we hear the word anger or wrath because we know that maybe we have contributed to the emotional pain of someone because we haven't handled our anger or our wrath well. I suspect for others Maybe there are wounds that still exist in our lives. Someone has said something or done something. They've lost control and, and it's almost like we replay it over and over again in our minds. We hear this. We hear what was said. We hear what was done. Or we see what was done. We remember it and it's very painful. Or maybe we can think of a situation where someone has done something or said something or acted in a way that has caused the, the blood to rise in the back of our neck and up to our head and, and we can almost feel the cracking unleash. And we just want to explode. I'm not talking about righteous anger. I'm talking about just anger, wrath, where we somehow lose control. I suspect that if you're like many... We don't have good thoughts when we hear the word anger, and even less so when we hear the word wrath. Even Hollywood uses the word wrath often in a negative fashion. I think of 1982, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where we have James Tiberius Kirk, who needs to stop Khan from unleashing the Genesis Project, a, a terrible weapon. Now, for some of you, you know, the fact that I just mentioned a pantheistic movie in church, you can feel the blood rise and you're angry. How dare he? The truth is we don't generally associate anger and even less so wrath with godliness. But biblically speaking, we need a category to understand that one of God's perfect divine attributes is wrath. If we don't understand that God is a wrathful God towards sin, we don't understand God. We have shortchanged our understanding of the perfection of God unless we embrace the fact that he is a wrathful God towards sin. 
Well, this introduction I want to pick up because we're going to hear the word wrath through the word propitiation in today's text. I want to pick up and read from 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. (laughs) But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. It's from the word heliasterion. Your Bible might read expiation. It might read the atoning sacrifice. All of them are acceptable. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't know about you, but I love verse 1. It is so balanced. If we only add the first sentence of verse 1, we would end up in despair, right? My beloved children, do not sin. And we say, whoa, what am I to do with that? It kind of leaves us in despair because we know that we are sinners. Or for a few individuals, those who I believe are deluded, they might say, well, okay, this suggests that we can have perfected sanctification here on earth. We can actually get to a point where we stop sinning. I've known two people in my life, professed Christ followers, who think they reached a point of perfected sanctification that short of going home to glory, somehow they have stopped sinning. They have deluded themselves All of us are sinners, even my dear wife, Betty Ann, very rarely, yet I have seen her sin. And for you all, a little less rare, I have seen you sin. You have certainly seen me sin. We are sinners in need of grace, every one of us. This is what makes the name given to Jesus in today's text, advocate so very special. Now in a moment, I'm going to have up on the screen a few of the names or titles of Christ. According to Cruden's Concordance, written back in 1737, there are 198 names or titles given to Jesus in the Bible. Now, I think all the ones he lists, they are correct. Are there more? I don't know. But when we talk about a few of the titles of Christ, I get a little sheepish because... Unless we look at all the titles and all the names of Christ, we've kind of shortchanged who Jesus is. We need all of the names, all of the titles to understand the greatness of Christ. But we'll just look at a few today. They include bridegroom, great high priest, the great I am, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the king of kings. He's the lamb of God. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Messiah. He's the risen Lord. He's the Rock. He's the Savior. He's the Son of Man. He's all of the I Am statements. He's the Bread. He's the Light. He's the Gate and the Door. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Way, the Truth, and the Life. Not up there. He's the Resurrection. And He's the True Vine. He's all of these, and He's so much more. And in today's text, He is the Advocate. And he's also the righteous one. The text says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, who's with the Father, the righteous one. Now this word advocate 
is paracletin. We generally use this word to refer not to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete. And when it refers to Jesus, it is a title that is legal. But when it refers to the Holy Spirit, which is its dominant usage, it means helper. You remember Jesus said, I have to go. And I will go to send the, the helper, the paraclete to you, for you need him. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes down. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us that we might believe in Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that is the down payment of our inheritance, our salvation. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to turn from sin and towards righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to identify our spiritual gifts and to begin to use them and serve God and others in a way that is pleasing. He is our helper. And that's how this word paraclete is often used in Scripture. But twice it's used of Jesus. One of them is in today's text, and it doesn't mean helper here, it means advocate. It actually is a legal term and it describes the defender of our soul. The one who is our lawyer against the evil one, the snake. It's kind of as though there's a drama unfolding in verses 1 and 2. It's a court situation. And generally in a court situation, we have five different groups. Today we'll only have four. We don't have a jury. It's not a jury trial. So the first individual is God the Father. He's the judge. Now most of the time in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the end time or the eschatological judge. But here it is God the Father. And he is the judge. He is presiding over the court case. And then there is Satan. He is the snake. He is the accuser. It's one of his titles. In fact, in an amazing verse... A stunning verse in Revelation 12, verse 10, we learn this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, that's Satan, that's the snake, the accuser of our brothers, Christ's followers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before the Father, before God. Apparently, at some point, I think now, Satan has regular access to God the Father and he comes and he accuses us before the Father. And I don't know about you, but I give him way too much material to accuse me. I don't think he makes it up. I think he rightly accuses me. He knows what I say or what I think or my attitudes. He knows these things about me and he accuses me before the Father. And just in case, it'll never happen. But just in case, somehow it'll never happen. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But just in case, you and I slip a sin by God the Father. It'll never happen. The accuser, the enemy of our soul, Satan, he brings it up. He makes sure that God knows what we said or what we did or what we thought or our attitude or what we didn't do that we should have done. He's the accuser of our soul. So the first individual is God the Father. He's the judge. The second is Satan. He's the prosecuting attorney. 
He's the accuser of our soul. The third is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, called the advocate, the legal term. He is the defender. He is our lawyer to defend believers in Christ. And then the fourth, well, that's us. We're the sorry saps who are on trial. And some of us are frequent flyers. Some of us, well, we've been around. We have reserved seating. We have seating that, oh, that happens. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Pastor Isaiah's reserved seating. It's kind of a worn chair. Four members, the judge, the accuser, the prosecutor, the defender, Jesus Christ, and us. And time and time again, Satan accuses me. He doesn't need to make things up. I give him way too much material. And my advocate, my lawyer, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, he serves on my behalf pro bono because what do I have to offer him? Absolutely nothing. And the interesting thing is, there doesn't seem to be attorney-client privilege. I understand that if I have an attorney and I share something with my attorney, he can't share it with the court. Well, that isn't the case here. If Satan accuses me and leaves out a few salacious details, Jesus, my advocate, might fill them in. What is he doing? Come on, don't pile on. But he is all truth. All truth, even about my failures. Now, I'm going to tell you something you probably don't know about me, but I am an expert in the law. I have watched several Perry Mason movies, so I know all about the law. And in Perry Mason movies, he always wins, and Jesus always wins. And in Perry Mason movies, he always uses the merits, the character of the defendant to defend that defendant. But Jesus never does that. Jesus doesn't use my character, thank goodness. He doesn't use your righteous acts, thank goodness. He doesn't defend us based on our merits, thank goodness. He defends us based on his merits, his righteousness, his perfection, his blood that by faith covers us, redeems us, cleanses us. That's why he never loses. If Jesus defended us based on our merits, he might lose. He never loses. It might go something like this. Satan accuses me and Jesus says, well, your honor, Satan got most of that right. But let me offer a few additional salacious details about Jeff because he's actually more guilty than Satan thinks. But none of it matters. At age four, beside his bed with his mother, Jeff knelt down on the floor. And by faith, with a four-year-old faith, he believed in me as Savior. He asked me to come into his heart and to forgive him of sin. And he confessed sin. And, and he asked me to empower him by my spirit away from sin and towards righteousness. And my righteousness now covers Jeff. My blood now covers Jeff. On his own merits, he's guilty. But on my merits, he 
is cleansed. And that's what Jesus does for us. But having been cleansed, we still need to keep short accounts with the Lord, not for salvation, but for the continuation of a vibrant relationship with the Lord. But if you're like me, sometimes, oh, we're so ashamed. We have confessed and repented and and really turned from our sin, but then we take two steps forward and sometimes we take them back. And we're so ashamed. We can't believe we thought that. We can't believe we said that. We can't believe we did that. We can't believe the motive behind our action. And we are so ashamed. And and rather than wanting to keep a short account, we're like, oh, I can't do it again. I can't confess one more time. I can't bring it to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher of the 19th century, he understands. He once wrote this. I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ, I'm ashamed to go. I feel as it would be no good to go, as if I were making Christ a minister to my sin, to go straight from the swine trough of my sin to the advocate. And yet, and yet we rightly go And the blood of Christ cleanses us. Though our sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow. Though it be as crimson, it be made pure. And he washes us. And we say, well, yeah, but he's going to put an asterisk next to our name. No, no asterisk. He washes us. He cleanses us. He makes us white as snow. No asterisks. As I think of asterisks, my mind goes back to 2007. If you're a baseball fan, you know the name Barry Bonds. Don't know what you think about him. He has more hardware than probably any player in history. He has an unprecedented seven most valuable player awards. He has an unprecedented 12 silver slugger awards. He is a two-way star. He has eight gold gloves. He has 14 all-star appearances. And in 2007, he took over the home run record from hammering Hank Aaron, who had hit 755 balls out of the yard. And Bonds hit 756. It splashed into the waters of San Francisco. And that ball was recovered. And then it was put up for auction. And a man named Mark Echo, who is a fashion designer, he purchased it for three quarter million dollars. And then he asked online, what should I do with this ball? And he took a vote and millions voted. And the majority vote was to put an asterisk on the ball that broke the home run record. A permanent asterisk. And so if you go to Cooperstown, The Hall of Fame in New York. I've been there, but I've never seen this ball. It's on display, and it's got an asterisk. Because some say, many say, Barry Bonds was a cheater. He injected Balco steroids into his body, and that helped him to achieve greatness on the ball field. There's an asterisk next to his name. There's no asterisk next to our name. If we know Christ... If we believed in Christ, if by faith we received Christ, 
The righteousness of Christ has covered us. We have been cleansed. How can we do anything less than worship God, obey God, desire to please God? No asterisks. Indeed, the text says the righteous one has become our propitiation. Let me read verse 2 again. It says this. He is the propitiation. That's word heliasterion or helosmos here. It could be expiation. It could be atoning sacrifice. He is the heliasterion for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word used here, halasmos, from heliosterion, has a wide semantic range. That's why versions have propitiation, expiation, atonement, the paying sacrifice. And I say yes to all of it. I think what it means specifically in this text is propitiation and expiation. And those are big words. Let's unpack them. Propitiation means to appease the righteous wrath of God. Hence the opening of the sermon. We tend to think of anger and wrath are, as words that have bad connotations. We've been the recipients of someone's wrath. Maybe we have scars from someone's wrath. Maybe shamefully we have unleashed the kraken. And we have set upon somebody our wrath. And, and they're hurting. They're wounded because of it. And we need to make that right. And so this word wrath has a bad connotation. But let us not impute the human idea of wrath to God's divine attribute. God's divine attribute is 100% pure. It's a right response to sin. He rightly hates sin. He has wrath towards sin. Sin like the criticism or disobeying parents or fathers who exasperate children or husbands who don't love wives or wives who don't respect husbands or individuals who somehow view intimacy as something other than a husband-wife marriage relationship. And he has a wrath towards these sins because sin divides, sin separates, sin leads to an eternity in hell. And so God who is just, balances his wrath and his love and his mercy. In fact, he pours out his wrath upon himself, upon the personhood of Jesus Christ. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, it's for us. He, the Father, made him the Son. The Father made the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus took our sin upon the cross. And the perfect fellowship of God was broken. And the wrath of God was poured out on the Son because of our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That through him we might become the righteousness of God. That's propitiation. Jesus appeased the righteous wrath of God. By paying the penalty of sin which is death. And then he conquered death and he rose again. That's this word propitiation. To appease the righteous wrath of God. And expiation is to be the atonement, to mollify 
to X out, to cover the sin. He covered our sin. He paid the penalty of our sin in our place. He expiated our sin, mollified or covered our sin for us. What a great God we serve. In an Old and New Testament sense combined, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb was put on the altar for slaughter. And the Lamb was slaughtered. His blood was shed. He did die. He was buried. And then on the third day, He conquered death. And He offers salvation to all. He died for all. But the effects, it's effectual only for those who by faith believe in Christ and receive Him. For us, He has appeased the righteous wrath of God. He has mollified and taken the place of our sin. And what is our response? How could it be anything short of belief? Belief in Jesus Christ to cry out, I believe, forgive me, cleanse me, become my Savior, my Redeemer, cover me with a righteousness, be my advocate forever. And it's also a hatred of sin because our sin was thrust on Christ. He paid the penalty of our sin. And the perfect fellowship between Father and Son and the Godhead was broken because of us. And he died a brutal death because of our sin. Rather than play with sin and wink at sin and smile at sin and laugh at sin, we need to hate sin, keep short accounts with the Lord, come to our advocate, the righteous one, and ask for forgiveness, ask for cleansing. Keep short accounts. As an act of worship, we need to tell others about our advocate. We need to be praying to our advocate. We need to be learning about our advocate. We need to be sharing with a world who desperately needs to know our advocate. Because our advocate bought us, redeemed us. And if we know Christ, he will give us a future and a hope with him in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for John 2, 1 and 2 that unfolds for us what is going on in the celestial court. We thank you that you are a righteous judge, Father. And we thank you that your spirit here draws us to yourself and empowers us towards righteousness. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We exalt him, who is our advocate, the righteous one, who even intercedes to you, Father, on our behalf, and who defends us against the enemy of our soul, the accuser, the snake. And through faith in him, he covers us with his shed blood, his righteousness, his perfection. Father, help us to learn more about your Son. Help us to keep short accounts of our sin, confessing and repenting. Help us to tell others about your Son, our advocate, 
that they too may receive freedom, cleansing, and someday when you call us from this earth, go home to be with you. Father, thank you for seeing us in the midst of our sin and sending your son, the advocate, to redeem us through faith. And if someone here today does not know your son, Jesus as Savior, by faith I pray that they might believe, believe in the advocate, your son, Jesus. His death as a payment of our sin, his resurrection as victory over the grave. And ask by faith for your son to become Savior and Lord. Help us to honorably serve your son as an act of worship. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.